the background of my parents is really uh, very, very diverse. Is when you have this problem with society, with history, and the history of Indian Pakistan is heavy loaded, and Greek and Turkey heavy loaded too, you can have transformation, you know, top down, not bottom up. People who are decision makers uh, have contacts with each other. Hello and welcome to the third edition, third episode of Alchemy of Transformation, where we discover, we research, we go in depth with experts in a matter of importance about transformation. What is transformation? Transformation is not 20%, not incremental change, not 30% change. Transformation is to change the essence of things. And that is what life is about and that is what the world should be about in the times that we live in. How do we transform the self, the society, and the community, our countries, and the world? And today we're gonna talk about the transformation of grand central strategy, the highest level of foreign policy strategy that there exists, and how to achieve peace using crisis. To achieve that and to go in depth with that is a very good friend of mine, someone I've spent a lot of time in Boston. I've also spent a lot of time in Greece when I visited him. Um, he's someone who's very knowledgeable, someone I respect, but also has the right credentials. He has got so many credentials that I can't explain all of them. But in short, he is one of the foremost planning policy, planning strategy officers of the Hellenic or the Greek Navy. He comes from an army, a family of army officers, and he has been an academic. He was with me at the Harvard Kennedy School, where he was a literary scholar over there. But he did a PhD in political Islam and has been a both a student in warfare, in grand strategy, in various Hellenic naval academies, but also a professor. And something later on, which is very relevant to what we're going through in Pakistan, he uh, negotiated with the IMF, the European Commission, some very tough times when Greece was going through a financial crisis. So come and welcome on this journey of discovering transformation of grand central strategy in achieving peace in the region, in the world, with Cleanthes uh, uh, Kyriakides, uh, better known as KK, uh, and his name hails from uh, the, the Black Sea area, and we'll find out a lot about where he comes from, his uh, his story, and the story of self. So welcome, KK, to the Alchemy of Transformation podcast. Good to have you here, friend. Thank you very much, uh, dear Ahmad. Uh, and uh, I will be allowed, I assume, to call you Ahmad, since we have been long-time friends. Uh, it's a pleasure and an honor to be here with you and share some thoughts uh, as regards the transformation and also some personal stories that I, I think I never told anybody, so you would be the first one to hear, uh, which shows how, you know, really uh, I was transformed and how I tried to help in transforming uh, both uh, the community uh, and how I see this transformation uh, being important and how it can be achieved uh, for the future of, of uh, uh, our uh, world, really. 
Absolutely, and and that is that is the reason why I always found our discussions very insightful um, around the region about politics, foreign policy, the world of Islam. You are at the moment in you know Greece has been a center of civilization, uh, philosophy, uh, warfare also. Um, so there's a lot of history to Greece. Now you are based in Dubai in academic, uh, mashallah, doing very well. Uh, in the University of Emirates. Um, so we will go more about your work later, but tell us about yourself, your ancestors, your parents, where uh, did you come from? And if somebody wants to know about KK, where did, does KK, KK come from? And what are the important inflection points? Do share with those with us. Well, let me start uh, by explaining that when I was born and I grew up, and this is for your younger audience. Uh, there was no such thing as uh, internet, obviously. There were no mobile phones. Uh, there was no social networking. Uh, there was only one influence for young kids, especially uh, if you were born in uh, rural areas in Greece. So the sole influence you could have was your parents. Frankly speaking, you know, if you were lucky enough to have some good teachers. Teachers were also very, very important. And I will come to this uh, to this part later. However, it is interesting because uh, the background of my parents is really uh, very, very diverse. So I have, you know, an islander mother. She comes from a very beautiful island, the island of Naxos, and from a uh, what is called, you know, the aristocracy. Actually, she can trace, she could trace, uh, may God rest her soul. Uh, she could trace her uh, her ancestors practically to a Byzantine emperor, but also uh, to uh, uh, the aristocracy of uh, uh, Venice, Venetia. So it, it is really interesting. Uh, uh, her family uh, had by far the biggest, you know, estate. I'll not even say villa, huge estate in the island, and they had their coat of arms. So I want you to understand, you know, the background of, of, of my mother, since uh, um, uh, her grandmother could not uh, speak Greek because her nanny was uh, French. We're talking about Greece that at the time was a very poor country. So just just understand, we're talking about really, really, really aristocracy. However, my father's background was exactly the opposite. Uh, he came to Greece, uh, actually, his, his parents came to Greece from a mountainous village uh, from the Black Sea region of Turkey as refugees. They had practically nothing. They were farmers. My father had uh, 11 siblings. So <laughs> they were extremely poor. Uh, um, when my father managed to uh, enter the military academy, that was not a success of my father or of my family, not even of the village. It was of the region, so it was it was that unrare. So it, it is it was it was that rare. It was it was that uh, uh, um, uh, really spectacular to have someone from from uh, this region. Practically, they, they did not even have uh, uh, um, shoes to wear. My father wore for the first time shoes when he entered the, the military academy. So we're talking about 
a, a very, very, very different background. And these people, these two people that uh, normally, this couple normally would have never met in, in normal circumstances, they met and they fell in love at a time again that in Greece, uh, uh, almost everybody uh, was married uh, through arranged marriages. So it's it's almost like a fairy tale, but it's it's a very interesting because at the time, uh, you know, my mother's family was really, really, really in the decline. My father was building up a name. He became a general of the special forces. Uh, my mother, uh, um, uh, despite the fact that she had potential for really great things, she was just, uh, 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 this is not uh, derogatory, uh, but uh, she was uh, a teacher in high school. She could have easily been, you know, a university professor with her potential. So they met and, you know, after a while, uh, my brother and myself were born. My brother is another great influence and you will understand later why. So uh, if your mother is an educator, and your father is in the armed forces, <laughs> most likely it's the examples to imitate. So all my life, I wanted to become an educator or an armed, force, uh, an armed forces officer. Finally, I ended up being both. <laughs> so I, I ended up my career as a naval officer. And after that, uh, uh, there was this self-transformation in the career in academia. Uh, so this is this is the the first thing which is important. Of course, uh, I can tell you that that in in my transformation, it was very very important uh, to 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 know the uh, amazing amazing uh, um, education that I was lucky enough to have under scholarship in uh, Harvard. It's good. I did not pay anything. This is good. Mm -hmm. So uh, and uh, and also naval postgraduate school with another couple of masters. So I had this this amazing professors when you have Heifetz and we had them together, you know, Heifetz, Gantz, yeah. Joseph Nye, uh, Stephen Walsh. Then really, 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 really something changes in the way you perceive things. And I and think you also I, understand I, you can play a role. <laughs> yes, no, absolutely. And I think it's very unique to have KK because we in Pakistan mostly hear from the Turkish uh, side of history, because of course we are very close to the Turks. Uh, we have a lot of shared history, but we don't hear much about the Greek side of the history and how the wars and how it came about. So, you know, what is fascinating is about how your parents came together. And I would imagine it is you're talking about post-World War II Europe, where families are being split apart. There's a lot of migration. There is a lot of post-poverty, destruction, but there's also a lot of upward mobility people doing well and I think um, you know armed forces uh, is um, was a channel and so was civil service in certain countries for people to get ahead uh, when there was hardly any business when there was hardly other um, you know academia per se and it's very similar because my father was also in the Pakistan military and um, and he had also migrated and he was part of the military and actually in my parents' generation, almost everyone is from the military armed forces, either from the infantry, uh, none from the Navy, but mostly on the, on the, on the armed forces side of it. Uh, but yes, the military had a huge influence in, in us getting where we are because myself, I was born in a military cantonment 
um, in um, in Bahawalpur and then grew up another one and then uh, the main headquarters city of Rawalpindi. So I do understand where you're coming from. But tell us a little bit more about the Black Sea um, area where the, your father came from, uh, because it seems that there was a lot of, you know, there was a lot happening at that time. Armenia, Turkey, World War One, World War Two. So, how did your father make your way uh, to to Greece, and then and then subsequently your decision to go and join the navy? Uh, actually, my father was born in Greece, so I my grandparents they they, they um, I, I could have said migrated, but really it's not the proper term. So they were refugees yes. practically. They left uh, during uh, World War One towards the end of World War One. So um, uh, just before uh, uh, the uh, Greek uh, uh, intervention slash invasion, uh, you know, it's how you see history, obviously, yes. uh, in Turkey. Yeah. And, and, uh, the Aznaks, the Aznaks and everything that happened, yes. What we called later on, you know, uh, um, the Asia Minor disaster for Greece or the Turkish War of Independence. Again, how you see history. So uh, uh, it's, it's always interesting. And it's interesting because you know there were there were uh, uh, more than two million Greeks living in, in uh, uh, Turkey uh, that time. Uh, so after the collapse of the Ottoman Empire, practically uh, based on, on international treaty, the Greek army invaded. It's true, Turkey, and then we had the war for almost four years. So uh, the family of my uh, father again, we're talking about poor. Uh, poor, illiterate, practically, uh, people. Uh, and I tell you this because everybody thinks that uh, in Greece, that, uh, you know, uh, everybody who came from Izmir or who came from Trabzon, uh, they were uh, rich and they were uh, really powerful. No, you had, you know, also some villages that were very, very poor. Um, uh, the village of my uh, grandparents was half Turkish and half Greek, and they had excellent relations among them. And I have heard them, you know, uh, speaking about that. So, which is which is another point that would reach in the end, which has to do with 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 the mentality, and has to do with you know how you perceive someone as a friend or how you can perceive uh, as as enemy. So they had to leave because of the war, practically, uh, and then of course after 1922 uh, things got much worse, and we had, uh, thank God, uh, the um, exchange of population, and after that things were you know calm. And for a period, uh, actually, there was there was a Greek-Turkish friendship uh, between uh, the two leaders of the countries, the famous Venizelos from Greece and uh, uh, Mustafa Kemal Atatürk from Turkey. So uh, we had we had our you know good periods of, of cooperation and, and peace, uh, but it did not last for long. Mm -hmm. So, but but it's interesting to see uh, how these people from the Black Sea region they left and either through Russia. Or straight, they they ended up in 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 in, in Greece. Uh, my uh, my folks uh, went to the northern part of Greece, uh, Macedonia. Of course, Macedonia is another issue, which is interesting, but we will not discuss it. I think now, but another very very interesting issue. Uh, and uh, uh, my father, uh, as I told you, was the first one in the entire region that managed to do something different. You know, move upwards, as you probably. Uh, 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 had you know from from your family some 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 similar uh, um, some some similar stories how you have heard uh, not only from your father but from others. So and he he met 
my mother when they were both uh, uh, in in uh, far away from their own uh, uh, birthplace. So imagine someone from an island and someone, uh, you know, from the north part of Greece and the refugee family practically meeting in Athens. Athens at the time was not that huge and the rest is history. Um, so uh, this, this, this is, I think, uh, an, interesting, uh, uh, an, an interesting story and shows also that armed forces at the time, uh, and I think that in many countries is the same, uh, also are also very, very important for, its, for their meritocracy. So you did not need to be, uh, you know, famous or from a or from a rich family or whatever. You could enter in a military academy based on your merit, even if you're extremely poor. <laughs> you know, uh, no corruption at all as regards the the the, the exams exams in in uh, pan-Hellenic level, pan-Greek level. So uh, uh, and uh, again, this is this is very interesting because in in a country that you have a lot of corruption. And in, in many, many, many other places, we tried to keep armed forces out of it, which is good. And it's fantastic. It's very similar to Pakistan also, because, you know, our armed forces also are most meritocratic. Nobody is ideal as compared to politics. And there's a saying that, uh, you know, any the, the way to become the president or the prime minister of the country uh, for any low middle or middle class person is by joining the military because then you can become the army chief and then conduct a coup and become the prime minister or the president. <laughs> uh, but otherwise, um, you know, if you join the political race, uh, it's not going to happen because it's very dynastic. Um, and so tell us a bit more about the influences that you had from your father and your mother and also your elder brother. You had mentioned that how did they shape your value system the decisions that you made and where you've ended up today. Tell us more about that. Uh, my mother was a passionate educator. Uh, I mean, uh, being an educator now myself, I can really trace uh, this, this uh, you know, uh, DNA uh, uh, running in my veins, uh, how much I, I feel passionate about, about education. Definitely, I took that from my mother. I mean, there is no no uh, single question about that, and uh, uh, you can see that from the very 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 beginning. I remember myself because of my mother, uh, uh, always holding a book in my hands. I don't know, probably even without being able to read or understand everything that is written in the book, but I really wanted to acquire knowledge. I wanted to learn things. And then I wanted also to become a storyteller and speak about these things, you know, disseminate the information, disseminate the knowledge. And this, again, was subconscious. And it was because of the example of my mother. So uh, most likely I, I could have been a, a, a teacher or probably university professor back in Greece, but there was also the other side, and the other side prevailed. That was the side of my father. So imagine having, you know, uh, 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 someone uh, coming, this is your father, someone <laughs> coming every day uh, home, you know, wearing his uniform and uh, telling you stories about, about the service. And uh, uh, service, uh, uh, it's not always war. Uh, 
for instance, uh, all the disaster management at the time was done by uh, the military. I remember my father, uh, uh, you know, uh, taking part in in in, in uh, earthquake recoveries, in, in uh, uh, firefighting, wildfires, name it, whatever you can think of, because always the army had uh, the material and also the training uh, to deal with this so I, it was my hero i mean it's 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 very very normal for every kid to see in his parents his heroes but for me my father was probably the hero for other for other persons too so it was very very uh, easy to say from the very beginning ah, i would like to be like my dad of course i would like to be like my mom and then you had uh, a very uh, rational choice which is mm, when you enter the military academy or the naval academy from early on you get a salary you are a public servant you will stay for 25 35 years uh, um, in the navy in the armed forces done so probably it's a better choice okay <laughs> you love education but this is a more rational choice for your life and yes this is a rational choice for your life but why navy Everybody in my family was was armed, and here is my, fa my my brother. My brother was the first one that became a naval officer. Um, he's three years older than me, so suddenly I had my brother becoming a naval officer, and I said, "Okay, I will do what my brother did. I love it. It's great. Uh, he was doing great in the academy. Uh, he's head of his class. Uh, he's now uh, uh, Admiral One Star. Perfect. Everything is fine." So I say, this is something to do. I have to do this. And the truth is that I had also a couple of relatives that were also in, in the Navy. And they told me something very simple as well. Again, here is the, here is, uh, the logic of things that, you know, if you are in the army, uh, um, you uh, will need to go to every single corner of Greece. If you are in the Navy, there are two or three bases done. <laughs> so you will be able to settle down as well if you want to have a family, you will not have all these transfers every, every single uh, year or every uh, couple of years. So this is why and this is how I uh, decided to uh, uh, become an officer. And uh, uh, really the, the Naval Academy years were very, very, very formative uh, for me. Uh, but of course, you know, apart from the training that I had, which includes training in France, the most important thing was later on the education. So, so tell me something, the Battle of Salamis, uh, that had nothing to do with you uh, joining the Navy. Of course, it's one of the most historical naval battles to have been fought uh, between the Asian Persians and the, and the Greek Empire. And the role of a woman, you know, um, uh, the Oracle of Delphi, who, which I visited, um, is very interesting in that. So, so, so you, you, are you sure you didn't have anything to do with that? That had nothing to do with it? First of all, uh, uh, you know, for the audience, everybody has understood that I'm not that old. <laughs> so I did not participate <laughs> in this battle. It's a very um, battle, yes, of course. <laughs> uh, a, a, lot of naval, a lot of naval historians uh, believe that, you know, it's, it's the first really big battle, naval battle in history. Uh, and uh, uh, Greeks are very, very proud to be of a naval nation. But as I told you, my mother is from an island. Uh, so uh, yeah, you can you can have some influence there as well, um, uh, and it's not only the naval battle of Salamis. I mean, even naval battles, big ones, 
took place in, in uh, Greece and uh, people do not know uh, because of the names. The last, the last big battle uh, of, of uh, uh, rowing ships took place in Greece, the naval battle of Lepanto. It was between you know, the Ottoman Empire and the West. Very, very interesting uh, uh, naval battle. So, yes, we have all this history. Actually, you know, the problem with Greece is that we have, uh, we, we produce more history that we can consume. <laughs> so this mm -hmm. is a problem in Greece. Yeah. Uh, you know, thing, but... Uh, yeah, one thing very interesting about Greece is it's a bit like the Islamic world, is that this has got a lot of glory in the past. And we'll talk about it a bit later. It's got beautiful history. And a lot of, you know, it was a center of civilization and power, economic, um, Sparta, military power, um, a lot of learning. Uh, and yet the history is behind and the present and the future is not that glorious, um, which is which is a lot which is happening in the Islamic world. And a lot of people then rely too much looking back into the past rather than focusing on the present and the future. And I think that's that's interesting that Greece has it and a lot of Muslim worlds have the same phenomenon going on. It is true, especially after 2008, that we had the huge financial crisis and people realized uh, suddenly that, OK, we are members of the European Union, but we did not become Germany or France overnight. Uh, so that was a wake up call. Um, Frankly speaking, uh, Greece did a lot of things. Uh, imagine that uh, we gained our independence from the Ottoman Empire uh, in the early 1820s, actually in the late 1820s. At the time, uh, Yemen was considered to be a much richer region, uh, you know, uh, of, of the Ottoman Empire than Greece. So, uh, again, everything is relative. So you can say that Greece uh, uh, did fairly well uh, for for uh, uh, almost a couple of centuries, still uh, we took advantage of, of being part of the European family, uh, and uh, in in the end uh, we did not really uh, um, we did not really prepare the future. This is this is the expression that I should I should I should use really. We did not prepare the future. We were unlucky to have uh, you know an occupation during World War II. We participated in many wars since 1828, uh, World War I, World War II, name it Korea. We were everywhere practically. Uh, but uh, uh, especially World War II and a civil war that followed World War II uh, destroyed big part of this, a big part of this. So again, we have step backs. We hope that we will, <laughs> we will gain a momentum again uh, and yeah, this, this is what we should focus on because the last 15 years have been bad for us, uh, for sure. Uh, if you if we had uh, the same, uh, you know, discussion uh, back in uh, 2004, 2005, uh, we believe that we're in the top of the world, one of the, you know, best countries in the world. But then we had this wake-up call with the financial crisis. Uh, so, uh, yes, and a lot of uh, Greeks, unfortunately, uh, they still speak about, you know, the glorious past. They don't do any, they don't make any effort to try to prepare a glorious future. Uh, we will see. And, uh, again, this is a matter of mentality. This is a matter of mindset. And I hope that we will discuss, I, I, I will explain my point, uh, which is that mindset is extremely important and it can change.
and it should change and it will change. We have to be optimistic. So tell us more about your naval career because it seems you were like a star planning, um, staff officer for planning and strategy. So tell us more about what way, what kind of projects, what kind of uh, strategy you were involved in, any interesting experiences. Uh, battles or um, meetings or things that you were part of in interesting developments uh, that the audience would be interested to hear? Yeah, well, um, first of all, you know, that that uh, our NATO ally is our potential enemy, which is Turkey. So uh, I, I uh, participated uh, as a junior officer in some crises. Actually, the most uh, interesting and important crisis is EMEA in 1996. Uh, I was uh, uh, weapon system officer and really uh, the whole feeling is that we go to war. It was the first time that I was sure that we were going to war and I was ready for this, prepared for this. Uh, is I it been like the Cyprus, when the Cyprus uh, invasion or the war took place, this is, that was not considered? No, no. The, the, the Cyprus invasion is, is uh, really back in 1974. I could tell you about my father participating. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So for story. you, for you, but for Greece, there so was a for, war. For, yeah, yeah. So practically the last time that you had uh, uh, Greeks fighting with Turks, despite the fact that there were very, very few the Greeks and they were in Cyprus, uh, was was the the, the uh, invasion in Cyprus 1974. But this is different. So uh, uh, after that, you know. We had some some issues. Always we have some issues with Turkey. Come on, I mean, if someone can understand that, you know, is someone from Pakistan, because <laughs> you have all these issues with India. So yeah. we don't need to explain many things. Um, you know, when you have uh, uh, when you have a neighbor that is much stronger than you in, in numbers, and you try also to build your deterrence, and you have crisis, and you need you need you know to 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 be strong enough to fight back if you if if you have to. But also, you need to resolve things in a diplomatic way. So uh, I participated as a junior officer in crisis on a tactical level. But when I grew up, I, I became the uh, the uh, director of, of uh, plans and policy. Before that, director of strategy in the Greek Navy. Uh, so as such, I also faced some things, uh, crisis again between the two countries. Or even, uh, you know, crisis uh, in, 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 in Turkey, like the, uh, the coup uh, against Erdogan, the attempted coup. Uh, when it happened, I was really the uh, uh, plans and policy director of the Greek Navy. This is so I was, yeah, Yes. Okay. And I was, I was really, 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 you know, uh, paying attention <laughs> to this uh, because we needed to see, you know. So tell me one thing, did the Russians provide cover to Erdogan when he flew into, because there is a lot of conspiracy that goes on about it, that the Russian planes came and escorted Erdogan, so he landed in Ankara or Istanbul. You would probably know that or not. <laughs> Do you understand that even if I had known that, I don't know that, uh, I would not have said that uh, in this in this podcast. However, uh, I can tell you that uh, uh, the entire uh, the entire international community uh, was very reluctant to say anything the first couple of hours. When we had solid information about what is going to happen, and we knew that much earlier than you know the media or whatever, then 
were informed, you know, the politicians, and you had this support towards Erdogan, everybody speaking about democracy. But in the beginning, everybody was very, very reluctant, which reminds me a little bit about the Arab Spring. But, you know, in the beginning, everybody was very, very, very reluctant uh, to see what's going to happen in Egypt and other countries as well. It was very touch and go. Uh, By the way, it was very touch and go. In the initial few hours, it could have gone the other way also. Yeah, yeah, true, true. So the whole idea, the whole idea is that uh, uh, yes, I participated in this crisis, but I was also a deck officer, so I commanded my own ship. Uh, you know, I I, uh, I really participated in, in, in important uh, positions. Uh, I took some important positions. Excuse me, uh, in NATO. Uh, I was studying Naval Forces Mediterranean Sea, I was the uh, electronic warfare, uh, uh, communication and protection officer. Uh, uh, when we had the, the uh, terrorist attack from Al-Qaeda uh, the, uh, uh, against the USS Cole in Aden. Ah, so yes, yes, imagine, yes, yes, yes. I, was, I, I was the protection officer of the force. So everybody, you know, came up to me, okay, now we need to reschedule everything, all our trips. Well, where uh, were you positioned? Where was your position at that time? Standing, standing naval forces in the Mediterranean. So there is there is a NATO standing group uh, um, with uh, uh, eight ships, one from different countries, eight countries, Greece, Turkey among them. Uh, and uh, uh, we had common exercises and we were ready to participate in operation if there was the need to do so. So at the time, you know, being the protection officer, which means practically you speak with intelligence and you are responsible for the for the protection when you you are uh, uh, when you are uh, in a port uh, uh, that was really interesting and again i was communication officer and electronic warfare officer mainly but in the end everything was about rescheduling you know how we will go in which ports we will go in which naval bases we will go in order to protect the ships after the the uh, the sudden attack and then the uh, uh, very daring attack of al qaeda uh, against uh, uh, you know an american ship uh, uss co so uh, yeah however if i had to single out one experience that it's really really interesting and important for for your audience interesting i think is uh, uh, when I was uh, advisor and uh, at the uh, military staff of uh, uh, the uh, alternate minister of defense. Alternate minister of defense is at the same level with minister of defense, so they speak straight with uh, uh, the prime minister. It's not, you know, a, a deputy minister. And my minister was responsible for the defense industry. So one day she called me. Uh, and told me, mm, you know something, uh, based on your experience and I have uh, seen what you have done here and you know, blah, 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 blah. We want you to be the negotiator, uh, you know, and the point of contact with the European Commission, uh, International Monetary Fund and European Central Bank as regards the transformation uh, and as regards the future of uh, uh, the Hellenic defense systems which is the most important Hellenic defense industry. I was astonished. I said, okay, I can do it. I will do it. No problem. Uh, but the whole idea was to try to change, uh, you know, the, the relations between, uh, you know, uh, 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 what we called at the time the Troika, so these three institutions and ourselves. Uh, because the, the, the whole idea was that Greece is in crisis 
and somehow we don't need this was the their idea we don't need the uh, defense industry um, because we lose money out of it so and and it is it is very easy to say come on you go and tell them guys it's not like this of course you need defense industry and done no it's much 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 more elaborate needed a lot of hard work from me and from my team uh days and nights and then the reports and then and, and, uh, trying to find and you had some very very good agreements uh, in order to 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 produce and then uh, sell some armament believe me that was a very very hard time there were so many families lives at stake because uh, uh, we were pushed to uh, uh, to fire a lot of people so it was it was it was you know a, a dual really challenge you know having a lot of families losing their jobs and their everyday bread you know <laughs> and also to lose the capability of the country to 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 uh, have a real real, a real defense industry uh, it, it worked very well this so tell us more about it because you know we are facing a financial crisis a near default situation we have imf tough, tough conditions Uh, including cut down in defense non productive defense expenditure non combat expenditure a lot of pressure um of on, on that so tell us what were the initial demands that came to you mm, and like to what extent the cuts wanted to be what did you negotiate and how did it come about and where is the hellenic defense forces today compared to how it was 5 10 years ago because that's very interesting it's a very unique experience most people go through the entire military careers they're having never to um negotiate on the the existence the survivability of the armed forces through non combat means because technically would have been the end of the hellenic defense forces through other than war basically <laughs> yeah so so uh, the first thing is that uh, when you speak with bureaucrats bureaucrats in general but bureaucrats some things that you think uh, that they are self evident they are not so they speak with numbers and they tell you you know uh, your industry uh, loses 1 million per day for example yeah okay however if you can prove that in the end of the day the losses will be much 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 less you can arrange for some pretty good agreements as contractor or subcontractor or, and also explain how the chain uh, 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 the, the the logistical chain works and if you need to to have some immediate response you cannot have it if you don't have your own defense industry then you start you start to convince them and from the initial unbelievable <laughs> unbelievable position that was they wanted practically to shut the hellenic defense systems down i'm not i'm not kidding uh, uh, this is our main industry uh, uh, producing ammunition i mean imagine if you cannot produce your own ammunition at all so the initial demand was to shut it down So when I uh, spoke with the with the uh, prime minister and the minister really the whole idea was uh, from the five factories uh, to be able to save 
uh, you know, um, uh, to save two or three. So we said, okay, if we can save three, it's fine. Uh, and then uh, 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 try to have uh, a 20% loss of jobs, but no more. So we were ready to accept some losses. Now, the strategy was multifolded. So I tell, I'll tell you, one thing is, you know, to try to get some uh, agreements. And we had some amazing agreements, even with Rimental in Germany. We had with, 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 with American companies. So we had some agreements and became contractors. And we show subcontractors, we, show, we showed to the, the, the Troika some uh, contracts. They say, look at this. So now we are in a much better position. This helps you to negotiate, of course, when you say, okay, we are in bad shape, but look at this. We're going to be much better in, in the near future. The second thing is, is to really try to uh, uh, avoid the, the, the loss of jobs and explain that you can move, for example, uh, some guys that are in admin, uh, make them be more productive, you know, uh, have some internal transfers, uh, in the end, to cut a long uh, story short, uh, it was agreed that no uh, uh, unit would be uh, uh, immediately uh, uh, shut down. Only one would be shut down after three years. Uh, and uh, uh, what is what is more important, there would be no firing, but we would give to 10%, not 20%, the opportunity, if they want, to live earlier, you know, to have their pension early. And was there cutting uh, pensions and those kind of things at that time? Or uh... oh yes, oh yes. Oh, come on, uh, even even the salaries in Greece. Greece went through some some tough times. I can tell you that I lost fifty uh, percent uh, of my salary. I'm talking about fifty percent, half. So it's crazy. Was cut. Was cut in Greece. Yes, yes half. When you were in the navy. Yes, <laughs> correct. Wow. Yeah, it's 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 yeah. Okay, if if it's not fifty uh, percent, it's probably uh, uh, forty-four point something. Yeah, yeah, half half of myself. Which again, uh, uh, when when uh, uh, when you arrange everything in your life, from mortgages to I don't know <laughs> anything you, you you can think, you have in your mind, and you're a public servant. You know that you have a steady salary. So suddenly you did not have the salary, and again we were the lucky ones because in the private sector you could be fired on the spot. So, so at least in the public sector we had a huge salary cut, and this is why I'm telling you. I mean, check the numbers. Uh, it's interesting to see the GDP per capita for Greece before 2008 and nowadays. Nowadays, that of course we had some improvements. Still, we were much better that time. Anyway, uh, my advice would be, you know, uh, to, to really, really, really uh, uh, try to be friendly. If someone right now wants to negotiate, you don't negotiate, uh, you know, uh, based based on the uh, sheer power. Come on, we are the armed forces, we need it, we don't care. No, it, it does not really work that way. You really need to convince that you're on the same side with the, the, the negotiator. You you want really genuine transformation and you want to improve the situation and you want to really uh, uh, take into account their advice. 
this is how they will also be open to listening to your points of view. Uh, and, and this is what happened, by the way, after that we had uh, a new government, radical left government, and uh, uh, the, whole, uh, the whole effort was torpedoed. Uh, uh, the good thing is that uh, uh, we did not have uh, uh, um, we shut down, I think, in the end, a couple of, of uh, industries, but but uh, from the fight. Uh, but uh, uh, again, we did not have many people that were fired. And uh, uh, that, that was tough. And that was tough because, again, when the radical left government came, they said, we don't care about any negotiations. We will not negotiate. You know, we don't care about IMF. And after a while, uh, you know, uh, we were very close to Grexit, to the Greek exit of the European Union that was uh, was avoided in the last moment. So I think that uh, uh, if we did not have this change in government, at least as regards the Hellenic defense industry and the Hellenic defense systems, the situations, situation would have been much better than what is now. Excellent. Um, no, this is, a, this is a tiring, tough time uh, for any nation to go through. And to be part of it uh, in that manner is, is a fascinating uh, uh, experience to have lived through. You should write a book, How to Negotiate the IMF. <laughs> and, and you know, survive that thing. Because, you know, the tendency is to be, hey, we have a right um, and to be tough, and but but you have to transform, and and I think warfare in itself is changing. So transformation of your infrastructure possibly is a good good thing. Yes, of course it's a good thing, and we try to do so. And and I think that in the end the crisis helped Greece transform in many sectors. Yes. So we should have done some things on our own. We did that under pressure. We did that with great losses, and I told you the financial losses of myself, my family. Uh, um, however, there were really some things that we needed uh, to do. Some things were not needed and were not necessary. And uh, frankly, they were even wrong that we were dictated to do. But there were some transformations uh, that, uh, that uh, we should actually uh, thank uh, uh, the institutions, the, the uh, IMF, ECB, and TC for. for uh, for imposing quote unquote, of yeah, course they think, made many many mistakes. I agree. Well, I think I think some of the things prescriptions should be done on your own um, and without pressure and in your own time. And if you do that, the the the, the pressure or the mistakes would be far fewer. So I think uh, that's very interesting. And so so since then, I think you've you've had your thirty two years um, career in navy, and you know. I do know for a fact that people who are in policy, planning and strategy, they are the best officers, often the thinking warriors, they're the, the intellectual or the scholarly warriors, as they are called in, in the military. So you are definitely one of them. And since then, um, you know, you've moved on into full-time academic role. Tell us a little bit more about that. How did that transition come about? Where do you see Dubai? Now we are going to transition because we've talked about your story of your community, which is the Navy and how you feel about it. But let's focus now about the future, where you are and how do you see the important projects you're involved with? What are the things that require a sense of urgency? What are the things that excite you uh, about the future of humanity, future of Greece or future of the region? 
Uh, a couple of things about uh, the academic life and uh, Dubai and the transformation uh, here before I move to, 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 to my vision and the thing that I want really uh, to speak about. So, uh, since you have lived in Dubai yourself, <laughs> you know that Dubai changes uh, from day to day, from month to month, not from year to year. And it's a huge transformation what's happening now. Uh, so I can tell you that if you want to live, if someone wants to live transformation, to live transformation, uh, he needs to come to Dubai and understand a lot of things that has to do with, with the will, uh, has to do, uh, uh, of course, with, with the power to do so. Uh, uh, but again, it has to do with mainly the will to do something and the planning, good planning. Uh, when when uh, the Emiratis were telling us, you know, that uh, they will have a probe to Mars, you know, Arabs on Mars, everybody was laughing, frankly. It happened. It happened. So, and you can see, you know, everything is, is better, bigger, whatever in Dubai, the biggest library, the biggest, largest, you know, eye, uh, 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 like the London Eye, uh, in Dubai, everything. So, and, and, and every, uh, every time you have something new, the, the biggest safari outside Africa. <laughs> so, uh, it, it really, it's, it's, it gets crazy what is going on here. But you can see people following uh, a, a really good leadership, leadership that does not care only about itself, you know, cares about the country, cares about the future, uh, uh, plans correctly, uh, diversifies its economy. Very, very, very good. This is about Dubai. Now about myself, you know, uh, uh, after my first passion that was the Navy, and you know, once an officer, we are always an officer. Uh, uh, um, if my country uh, needs me uh, at that, uh, no time, I will go back and, and uh, fight. I hope that it will never have uh, to be this way. But you know, your first passion is, you know, your country, your nation, and, and really, 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 uh, 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 you know, this, this, uh, this is for a lifetime. You get married to this, you know. Again, once an officer, always an officer. The second passion was education. So having having uh, 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 already uh, obtained uh, three master's degrees and uh, one of them with you in Harvard, the other two in Naval Postgraduate School in California, uh, uh, and also uh, my PhD, uh, I, um, I was recruited only three months after my uh, retirement <laughs> uh, by the American University in the Emirates here. Uh, and uh, speaking about meritocracy, not that, that I am a super, you know, uh, professional or uh, academic, but I had the opportunity as, as a foreigner and a new uh, academic uh, to become the department chair, program director of the bachelor's, the program director of the master's. Now I am the senate chair of the university. So, and this is, you know, my, my, my fourth year, not even fourth year, three years and a half in academia. This shows that if they think you have potential, they don't stop you. It's like like the U.S. used to be once, you know, the land of opportunity. Dubai, UAE, they have this mentality. And definitely they have this mentality in my universe. Uh, so I'm very happy about that. I'm very happy that I can I can really uh, uh, contribute in, in, in uh, uh, sharing my experience uh, and, and uh, my knowledge as well, because I mean, the security security and and global studies college so actually uh, my university has the only uh, it's the only private university that has a security college it's a uh, it's a little bit uh, you know sensitive in the arab world security 
Uh, but we have an amazing team, you know, from with with uh, uh, with uh, uh, professors from from around the world. It's it's, it's good anyway. But this is me. This is Dubai. This is you know uh, really uh, having a good uh, life, having and fun. And so, what does Dubai tell you about the future of the region, future of cities, future of global politics? Yeah. Is Dubai uh, going to be replicated in other places? Like, what does it tell you? And what is the future of Dubai? It is the place to replicate. For me, it's going to be the most livable city by 2050. I'm sure about this. And people say, "Come on, you cannot have this in a in a country uh, or in a uh, you know in a region uh, that it's uh, uh, so hot." The main problem is climate, frankly. <laughs> uh, uh, the answer is no. The answer is no. I mean, now now there is a project that it's, it sounds crazy. You know, a huge. Uh, 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 um, uh, um, Uh, huge, huge uh, uh, motorway uh, only for cyclists. You know, we're talking about 40, 50, 70, 100 kilometers. You know, grandiose projects, yeah. and and all of it, all of it being you know air conditioned, <laughs> so that you can go. To... <laughs> really, you know, when you hear that, you laugh. When they first told me, you know, you will come to Dubai and you will see that there are. You know, uh, 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 bus stops that are in condition. I laugh. I say, "Come on, what are you talking about?" And and they are. So uh, uh, and uh, you know, it's not only it's not only you know the mall. It's not only you know the fountain. It's not only the things that people people uh, uh, know about Dubai. Uh, Dubai really, really uh, has has been uh, transformed. Um, I, I live in an area that uh, uh, you know. In, on the one side, you can go and you can see practically how Dubai used to be, so it's it's almost desert. On the other side, it's so green that you could easily think you are in England. And and this is all man-made. They have changed even the microclimate. Yeah, so, but, uh, but this... there is there is a star that is emerging uh, somewhat to the west. And somewhat to challenge Dubai, which is the Saudi Arabia and Riyadh. And when you talk about transformation, now that is a very interesting transformation story. I mean, yeah. you know, Imran Khan wanted to do transformation of Pakistan, and after four years, he didn't get far. But I think the same four years, uh, the, the Prince Mohammed bin Salman has been able to achieve a humongous transformation in Saudi Arabia. A lot is yet to happen, to be seen. But you know, I mean, Saudi Arabia is going to give Dubai a tough time. How do you see this rivalry, friendship uh, play out? And I think well, let's talk about that. It's what happening in Saudi Arabia, the kingdom, if you may. And then let's talk about the Abraham Accords, which is yep. slightly more macro in the region that has happened. Yes. Look. <laughs> There is much room for for cooperation along with the competition. Uh, Mohammed bin Salman, I think, uh, has as a role model uh, Mohammed bin Zayed, and and we have to be clear. We see we see uh, uh, you know that that there are there are things that are already done in the Emirates, and you know uh, uh, Saudi Arabia tries to do like the opening with the, the tourism sector. Tourism sector is 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 uh, huge. Uh, also, tolerance. Uh, tolerance is is extremely important 
for 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 the whole idea of of uh, uh, Emirates, a country that has uh, uh, less than 15% of Emiratis and more than 85% of expats working, and everybody is really is happy. I mean, it's it's a country that has you know a, a ministry of happiness. I'm not kidding again. This is this is true. So I think that Mohammed bin Salman really transforms, has been transforming uh, 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 the society, first of all, of, of uh, Saudi Arabia. Um, we see the opening uh, to, to females and the opening to the world. And uh, I, I think that especially in Saudi Arabia, the, the leadership is a little bit more progressive than the society, usually it's vice versa. So uh, uh, probably they were not even ready for such, you know, uh, 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 such changes. If you see this, this is my cat's uh, uh, tail. My cat is here and she's playing around. So if you see <laughs> a cat in the Zoom, so it's it's Luda, you can say hi. So yeah. you can see Mohammed bin Salman. <laughs> you can see Mohammed bin Salman being a true leader, transformational leader. And <clears throat> of course, if Dubai, for instance, is a huge uh, uh, um, tourist destination and suddenly you have not only Riyadh, many, many places in Saudi Arabia being a rival, this is a problem. On the other hand, this could be also a win-win. So <clears throat> you can you can always check how we can have, instead of confrontation, cooperation, and this is where I will go uh, to, 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 to uh, you know, the end of our discussion. I want really to discuss about this. But let me start. Uh, uh, when we speak about cooperation with Abraham Accords. Yes. Very Abraham Accords is extremely interesting. I mean, <coughs> I, I remember mean, they, when they I first came through by here, Trump, uh, of all the people. Yeah, I, I, for his own reasons, of course. <laughs> but uh, when, I, when I first came to uh, uh, the Emirates, they told me now there are a couple of things that you should be sensitive when you speak in class, you know, it's global uh, global studies. So when you speak about the Palestinians and the Palestinian issue, you have to be a little bit careful. Okay, guys, right, I got it, done. So later on, when suddenly, because it was sudden for the society, you had this uh, Abraham Accords, everybody was stunned. Not the ones that are here and watch what has been uh, done in the past. So. <clears throat> The cooperation between Israel and the Gulf countries has been, you know, uh, 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 has been done for a long time. It's, 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 it's a long process and we did not decide one day, ah, we are friends now with Israel. Why this? First of all, because of, of uh, Iran's aggressive policy in the region, uh, Iran uh, controlling four Arab capitals, uh, Beirut, Damascus, uh, Sana, and of course Baghdad. And this was really, really, really something that Saudi Arabia mainly could not tolerate, but also the other countries. UAE, as you know, they have a problem with Iran because uh, they consider three islands that are occupied by Iran. Again, this is a matter of interpretation. Uh, of course, I feel myself as an Emirati, I completely support them in this claim. Uh, and I can tell you that <coughs> cooperation in order to contain Iran which is the biggest country in, in, in the area. I'm talking about, uh, you know, the area of, of the Gulf, because in the Muslim world, you have also Egypt, you have also Turkey. 
But really, here Iran was the main player and they wanted to contain it. And in this regard, there was much cooperation under the table with Israel. So the ones who knew that really were not extremely surprised by the Abraham Accords. After all, you know, UAE and Bahrain, they never had, you know, a war. So it's not a, a peace treaty. It's normalization of relations, really. Of course, the impact is huge. And, you know, I don't think that you will see easily, but in the end it will happen, uh, you know, uh, 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 an official cooperation between Saudi Arabia and Israel. Again, because the transformation needs to be a little bit gradual and, and uh, uh, the Prince Mohammed bin Salman is really, is really uh, doing a lot of things in a very, very, very fast time. And sometimes the, the society is not ready. So I think the Saudi society is not ready for you know an agreement with Israel uh, like uh, like the Emirati society was, and I think it was especially because you have this uh, unbelievable number of, of foreigners here, uh, uh, expats, uh, and 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 they have this mentality of tolerance uh, uh, very much in their in their policy. So uh, Abraham Accords, and I could include there because it's not Abraham Accords, but it's important. Morocco, it's it's uh, that that signed as well. It's, it's really, you know, a framework that shows the future, a future of cooperation, an arc, I would say, of cooperation. You see the cooperation in the, uh, in the Mediterranean Sea from Spain, uh, France, uh, Italy, Greece, Cyprus. Uh, uh, I will not include Turkey, not because I, I, I hate Turkey, because Turkey is a little bit, you know, on the revision side of history. So they, they want with, with, with uh, you know, the... the, the uh, Mavi Batan, they want the biggest part, the biggest part or all the part of the Eastern Mediterranean Sea. This is why you see in most cases they are a little bit marginalized by the station as well. And there is no question about that. So we are talking about cooperation. When Israel can have cooperation with Arab, uh, Arab countries, why we cannot speak about cooperation of, of you know, uh, uh, Greece and Turkey? Why not of, uh, you know, uh, Pakistan and India? Uh, if, if I say someone to someone uh, this, uh, he would probably laugh. <laughs> but, but I think it is achievable. And uh, before you think that I'm crazy, I will explain. And this is what I feel passionate about. And this is what I really want to talk about as regards transformation. No, so, absolutely. I, I think it's fascinating what, you, what you're talking about, the transformation. And definitely Abraham Accords is a big example of that. I think... Um, the cooperation between the Gulf states and some elements of Israeli either private sector or the government has been ongoing. I remember I was in Dubai 2010 and someone from US is actually a Harvard Law School person. I know uh, she mentioned that that there is, you know, people who are decision makers uh, have contacts with each other. And, and that's always the fact that governments, security agencies, intelligence agencies, you may be on war or other uh, kind of arrangements with each other, but they do have relationships and linkages with each other. So there was some cooperation, particularly that you mentioned the, about Iran uh, uh, and particularly this nuclear program. Uh, there was, and I think that has led to uh, a series of these things. So this is not definitely a surprising thing. Uh, it was something in the making. Yes, for sure. Yes, for sure. And uh, I can tell you that the cooperation um, in, in the region 
uh, is going to be greater uh, if we understand uh, the main the main common theme that we have, which is our vulnerability. And here, uh, I will try to give you a couple of examples to show you why what we consider, you know, a disaster or a crisis or a problem, really, it's not a challenge. Really, it's an opportunity. Uh, let me start, you know, with uh, the uh, unbelievable, uh, uh, with an unbelievable earthquake that we had in Turkey and Syria. Uh, more than 40,000 dead already in Turkey. Uh, we don't know the number in Syria, but should be similar. Uh, and uh, the result in the political, if you like, uh -huh. arena was to bring uh, the traditional potential enemies, Greece and Turkey, very close to each other. So we had this in the past in 1999. Uh, we called it, you know, the earthquake diplomacy. There was a big earthquake in Turkey and a big earthquake in Greece. Of course, you know, we had the honeymoon for three months, four months. After that, everybody forgot about it. Now, now it's it's much bigger what happened. But I want to highlight that the foreign minister of of uh, Turkey, uh, the the president of Turkey, the defense minister of Turkey, that practically and for the uh, for for reasons I think of, of uh, uh, you know, uh, internal consumption for, for the elections, really. Uh, they were, they, they had the rhetoric of war. You know, we will come one night, we will attack one night, uh, 10 days, five days before the, the uh, uh, before the, the earthquake, after the earthquake, and when Greece was the first country that- So, really sent, again, so there was a heightened state of alert between Greece and Turkey just before the oh, earthquake. Oh, yes. The, yes, the, the, we the, don't know about that. The worst, the worst in history. The rhetoric was really, really, really extremely, extremely uh, inflammatory. So uh, there is there is this famous expression of uh, President Erdogan that he said it at least five times. We will come one night. Come on, I mean, come. <laughs> this is a direct threat, you know, okay. If you I, want I, to come, come. I, Why do you say I, this? I, President Erdogan says those kind of things. <laughs> so yeah, so but it was repeated by 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 uh, by the Minister of Foreign Affairs, by the Minister of Defense. So it was in the rhetoric in the rhetoric of Turkey for almost you know two months, every single day or every two or three days, we would hear the same thing. It was the first time in history, and you know, I have been in many crises, you know, from Greece and Turkey. I never before saw this thing. Suddenly, after the earthquake, and when Greece responded. You know, was the first that sent, uh, you know, responders. We always help, of course, uh, and I'm sure that Turkey helps as well Greece whenever there is a problem like this. Uh, above all, you are humans. Uh, the same, the same persons that were practically saying we will attack you. Say, guys, you know, we have this proposal. Uh, six new things. Check on this. Based on this, we can discuss. We can solve our problems. So entirely I mean, 180 degrees change of direction but my my question is why do we need an earthquake in order to change our mindset why as i told you in the beginning my my uh, grandparents were living in a, in, a, in a village that was half you know uh, turkish half greek right. had amazing relations among them amazing relations so there was no fighting, 
I will come to this 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 uh, again uh, back later. Think about now the pandemic. We had more than seven million dead people around the world. People do not know in Spanish influenza, in Spanish flu, that was just after World War One. Fifty million people. We had more wars than in the world. Yeah. I mean, in the world we had less, and it was considered to be the great war. But the pandemic had more more deaths, so more fatalities than the war. So then and now during the pandemic, you saw UAE helping Iran. And I just explained the relations between UAE and Iran are not the best in the world. You know, you had countries that really were against each other, cooperating hugely or even having practically a moratorium. There was no crisis, there was no threat. Everybody tried to save himself and his neighbor. So it is obvious that when you have a problem, which is a big one, you concentrate on the problem and you also concentrate on the cooperation. So cooperation is not something that should be ruled out eh? a priori. You cannot say a priori, ah, I cannot cooperate with the Turk. Of course you can. You did that many times in the past. Many times in the past. You had even, you know, a friendship agreement between uh, uh, Kemal uh, Ataturk and Eleftherios Venizelos, you know, the leaders at the time of, of Greece and Turkey. You can do it. Of course, you know, if you ask a Turk, he, he will tell you, no, come on, Greeks, they want everything for themselves. If you know, ask a Greek, say, look, they violate all, all our rights and our, uh, you know, not only, uh, 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 they, they, they threaten our, our sovereignty, not only sovereign rights. So, and again, this is because we want it to be like this. You know, this is a little bit, you know, a constructivist argument. The world is what we made of it. Yes. So if we really, if we really want to transform we don't need a, a divine intervention like a huge pandemic or earthquakes or tsunamis or floods. My point is that in the end, what we do after pressure from things that we cannot control, we can do it alone. Let's assume before going to a table of negotiations that we had the big pandemic, that we had the big earthquake or that we are going to have, you know, I don't know, an alien invasion in 10 days. So this should be the mentality. How I can help you, how you can help me, so that we have a win-win situation. Because usually, when you have confrontational attitude, you end up with a lose-lose situation. So cooperation, uh, and, and may, I, I may sound a little bit liberal here, but cooperation is important, and you should not think of yourself in a very realist uh, way that, you know, if, if my potential enemy wins five and I win uh, four, I don't want the agreement because he won more than me. It's not like this. You know, we're talking about absolute gains. If he gains something and I gain something, even if it's less, we both win. So but this you know, is, this goes is the... against uh, human nature. You know, I have been involved in transformation in corporates, in organizations foundations, private sector, I've always found human beings delay or resist changing their behavior, even if the disaster is like 10 feet away. So, so they somehow they feel 
that there's going to avoid the disaster and things going to get better and that they can go on living the way they did and not changing their behavior they will not modify their behavior and invite trouble until the disaster comes on their heads and then it's by that time it's too late i think jobs have to be cut uh, things have to be done drastically so how do you cater for that basis of human nature that we resist change and and for generations people have taken adversarial views of other countries and how do you move that from confrontation to cooperation if 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 you believe you know in in uh, homo homini lupus which is you know the 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 man is good for the other man and the bad nature of man uh, uh then it's 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 hard to 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 really try to change that because it's human nature as you said um uh, on the other uh, uh, on the other side uh, you know socrates used to say that nobody is willingly bad so everybody is is born really uh, with with a good nature so uh the whole idea is that uh, uh probably we need a little bit of more disasters in order to understand you know the vulnerability and change things there was there was a, a good old joke that said you know that that uh, uh, everybody uh, believes in god you know the atheist uh, believes in god the minute that he's on the plane and the plane is ready to crash he believes in god automatically <laughs> so uh, that is exactly that is it the communist by the way uh, you know uh, uh, really really uh, believes in capitalism when he gets some good money in his hands So, so there are, there are everybody, you know, you know, it's good, you know, the, the, the ideal world, but practically when you face issues, you change your mind. So the, the whole thing is, can we change through education? And this is, this is where we have a role to play. Can you change through education, the mentality, the mindset, this can be the confrontation. If you learn, you know that 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 uh, uh, your enemy is, is is India. Indians learn from from very very early that their enemy is Pakistan. If you learn, you know that you know. Okay, we have Kashmir. What we're going to do with Kashmir, you know, and and not you know, Kashmir should be a, a country of of resources for everybody. We could have you know uh, 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 easy access, uh, you know, so that we can we can win both of us from this the same as regards you know the GNC Cyprus that is divided everything so if you don't if you don't teach that if you don't try to speak about cooperation you know when you speak about cooperation most likely uh, you will be considered to be a traitor but again it's a matter of mentality if you change your mentality and you have to change it you know from 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 early on you cannot suddenly Uh, you know, you cannot say to a Palestinian after you know uh, 70 years of fighting, Israelis are your friends. No, they are not. <laughs> uh, you know, Turks are the friends of Greece. No, they are not. They could be. They could be. And and we should work in order to achieve this cooperation and not wait for a huge disaster, you know, a pandemic or an earthquake or a, or a tsunami in order to come closer to each other. Because so I have, a, I have a view on this, uh, which is education is important. Um, it takes a lot of time, and you know, people's uh, belief system sometimes is immune to logic and education. They don't 
uh, if you believe in something, you no amount of evidence will to be the contrary. But the thing that is more can be more important in the belief is um, how hot or how heavy is your pocket with the dollars, which is basically my thing is on prosperity. Is there a common prosperity, common good? Hey, we are in it together. Let's have a good time. Let's all have a party. And why should we all be miserable? Why can't we be better off? Is there a shade prosperity way in which Turkey, Greece, uh, the Middle East, and you know, the problem that you talk about is very much a problem between Afghanistan and Pakistan. Like Afghanistan has been fighting for 50 years and they are in a very, you know, they, they, they haven't seen prosperity. They just know how to fight and and with whatever happens to Pakistan or any other country. So how do you change that mindset is through, you know, a lot of um, uh, create possibility of of wealth. I think the US did that uh, with um, uh, the Marshall Plan. I think Mar without the Marshall Plan, I think Europe probably would have descended into fighting yeah, again. Yeah, yeah, I think yeah. China was doing it with this uh, BRI, Belt and Road Initiative. So one needs a lot of investment to create joint prosperity within the people. What do you think of that? Soviet Union, by the way, tried the same with uh, people don't know it, the Molotov plan. It was like the Marshall plan. Uh, oh. Anyway, uh, it is true, but this is a case uh, that, you know, uh, you tried to help your friends. Now, it's much more difficult uh, to try to bring together your enemies. So yes. it's, it's much more difficult. But of course, if there are resources out there and you understand that in the end, with your behavior, you will not be able to use the resources and your enemy will not be able to use the resources. But if you cooperate, you will both gain something out of the resources. Then I think that you can you know, change things. Another thing with the transformation though, is when you have this problem with society, with history, and the history of India and Pakistan is heavy loaded and Greek and Turkey heavy loaded too, you can have transformation, you know, top down, not bottom up. So the transformation in Saudi Arabia uh, it did not come from the society of Saudi Arabia. They say, okay, let's be very, very open now. Uh, let's no. It was, it was, it was from a leadership that really, really, really tried to change that. It's always harder, of course, in a in a democratic country that you have elections and you can become a martyr or a scapegoat. We have discussed that, you know, in Harvard many, many times. But again, you know, leadership plays a role in the transformation. You have to educate your people and you have to really, really, really try to transform because this is this is the leadership uh, 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 challenge, the big challenge. Make them see the reality and the reality is most of the times is not really good and try to change it. So again, so you need you need you need resources, you need leadership and in the end, you know, you need also the education. Education is important. With these three things, you can really, you know, change the mindset. Uh, and, uh, and interesting again, you say that because, you know, Henry Ford would say that if I were to listen to my consumers and what uh, our, uh, our market survey, what if I had asked what people wanted, all of them wanted a faster horse <laughs> and not a car. And and but but so my thing was to give them something that they did not realize that they needed, 
um, and, and, and to make it real for them. And that is the thing about a visionary leader. And I think UAE has that in the form of uh, both the rulers of, of Abu Dhabi and Dubai. I think Saudi Arabia now has that, that they lead their people in terms of opinion, in terms of the future and vision and show that and, and, and create a better reality for their people than there was possible before. One area, I think, out of this Ibrahimic Accords of Cooperation, I think, although that may, in terms, subcontinent may suffer because of that, is technology. You know, we know that Israel is one of the best in the world in technology. I think as Middle East looks to evolve, develop, they have done the brick and mortar approach which was primarily built on Bangladeshi, Pakistani and Indian labor workers. But now they have that has done where it could have taken them. Now you need technology, uh, growth, innovation. And I think that's where, you know, Israel can play a very positive role in the wider GCC. And I think that's quite visionary of them if they can collaborate on that area and talking about cooperation in an area to create wealth and to create greater alignment. I completely agree. Uh, I am one of the uh, supporters of the Abraham Accords, explaining that uh, uh, this will will be again a win-win, uh, not only for both countries, for the region. The region will benefit from this from this cooperation. You know, uh, sometimes when you do something in order to benefit yourself, the others can benefit as well. You know, from from your growth. Uh, so, uh, yes, I think that uh, that uh, this is the case uh, for the Abraham Accords. And I don't want to be misunderstood. If, if they call me tomorrow and tell me, come back to Greece, we need to fight with Turkey, uh, I will be very glad to do so. You know, I have been trained to do so. I'm an officer and uh, my 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 uh, uh, country is my number one, you know, priority. However, uh, uh, I really think that, you know, if mentality change, mentality change is for both. You know, I don't want the mentality changes of Indians, but not of Pakistanis. I don't want the mentality change of, of Greeks, but not of Turks. You know, I want I want both sides to change the mentality and, and understand the win-win. If we can do that, really in the end, we will have uh, more cooperation. And uh, uh, some countries have been doing so uh, lately. And of course, Abraham Accords is the, the main, the main uh, you know, agreement that we can see that it's not the only one, by the way. Uh, I think anyway, finishing off so, your theme of cooperation, I think one thing I would say is that the human beings are driven by two great emotions, fear and love, you know, and we would like love to drive us to do good things. But as you've seen, fear is, of course, more potent. And I think if you look at it, cooperation, NATO, fear out of fear of the Soviet Union, European Union, fear out of war or warfare, it has achieved a lot of good and a lot of cooperation. So do you see as a NATO against climate change or a NATO against um, financial insecurity or financial crisis, do you see that the NATO was military mechanical force uh, and you find that, that there is another form of NATO that can come up which is a better version, leads to more cooperation positive, in a positive way and more inclusive for the betterment of humanity. Of well, course, and we should write a paper on it. 
we should definitely write a paper on NATO of, of climate change. <laughs> I, I will not. I will not name it NATO, but you know, strengthening global institutions is yes. extremely important. You know, for for uh, the improvement of of the life of global community and climate change is is uh, probably uh, the most important and pressing uh, issue in this. But always the mentality is you need to minimize your threats or you know you try to maximize your profit. Either way, if you see it, you know, as an offensive realist or as a defensive realist, really in the end, uh, uh, cooperation uh, uh, you you can you can cooperate. Uh, uh, why? Because even if it's not in your myopic self-interest, in the end, it's going to be your interest. So you will not do it because you're a good guy. You will not do it because you are kind-hearted or because you want to, to, to help everybody. You will do it because in the end, it will improve your own life. So, uh, and, and uh, yes, you are very right, uh, but uh, I will not use NATO. <laughs> no, and NATO as a, symbolic, as a symbolic, yeah. um, uh, as a symbolic um, uh, uh, cooperation agency. <laughs> make, uh, make at least EU. <laughs> make, make it an EU, make it an EU. <laughs> Maybe ecology. But it'll be fascinating paper in EU against a cooperation against climate change or natural disasters, how can you create warning systems for that purpose? But anyways, um, KK, it was a fantastic um, to have you with us and having a very wide-ranging discussion that took us from uh, the Black Sea, from the shores of the Black Sea uh, to the islands of Greece, um, then back to Boston, um, to the Naval Academy, which is one of the very you know finest institutions, the US uh, Naval Academy. Uh, from there and then back to Greece and Turkey and back to Middle Greek East. Greek Naval Academy. Greek and then, Naval the Greek Academy. Naval Academy. <laughs> the Greek Naval Academy. Um, and then back to uh, UAE uh, and, and the region um, and talking about cooperation. And how you've talked about how disaster or fear brings people together, it's human nature, and how that could be fostered to for better cooperation and better peace so thank you very much for joining us uh, any parting thoughts that you have uh, to share with your audience uh, you know we become the change we bring about the change that that we want we cannot speak about change if we are not part of it so if if the audience really believe that we need to transform if they really believe that we need to change, they must do something about it. They cannot stay idle. So my my final final thought, you know, or even a piece of advice, if I may, is you know, you know, do something about it. When you care about something, when you see that something is not correct and you want to transform it, you want to change it, don't stay idle. Do something about it. And fantastic. And thank you very much, all of the audience, for joining us. Um, I think what we talked about was Grand Central Strategy. KK, as a friend, is um, not only curious and academic, but he's also very imaginative. Um, and that, of course, I'm, I'm sure comes from partly his father and his mother and his academic pursuits. And we've seen how humanity is evolving, warfare is evolving, how countries go through crises. And sometimes the crisis forces you to do or to take the right actions. But the real test of leadership, visionary leadership, whether it's in Pakistan or Greece or Turkey, is to make the right decisions of cooperation, of growth, 
uh, with before the crisis hits so you are able to plan and prepare for the future um, with that um, we end our third episode of alchemy of transformation uh, fascinating to have you join in discussion about the region about grand central strategy in diplomacy in foreign policy and how we can all play a role in transforming humanity and transforming our society thank you